Welcome to Curva Mundial. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Curva Mundial. I am your host, Salbono, and my next guest is the author of the acclaimed book, No Longer Naive, Africa Football's Growing Impact at the World Cup. Please welcome to the show, journalist, author, and Arsenal supporter, Ibrahim Mustafa. Hello, Ibrahim. Hey, Sal, thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to this. Uh, yeah, should be good. Yeah, I'm super excited and honored to have you on. I'm so happy to have you on because you wrote a fantastic book about a topic I am so passionate about. And I think that Africa and African soccer especially does not get talked about nearly enough. The players that come from that continent have made an impact in recent years. We've seen as Mo Salah, Sadio Mane, Riyamarez, Obama Yang. But of course, the legends, Drogba, Eto, Salimuntari, Roger Miller, to name a few, but the continent and the leagues and the nations do not get the attention that they deserve. So was that your catalyst for writing this? Uh, yeah, it was actually. It was um, a sort of a, a, a sort of prompted me onto it. Was just thinking about the World Cup and how African teams generally have not always tended to do well, but have caused some major shocks over the years and have always like. M- in more recent tournaments have sort of made a name for themselves. I mean, maybe over the last 20, 30 years um, since, you know, Cameroon mainly in 1990. But then I sort of wanted to explore what took African football so long to be sort of recognised on the global stage in terms of World Cups. And, you know, so I thought sort of digging around and found out how African clubs were virtually excluded from the qualification process initially. Not excluded, but that the... the the um, obstacles that were put in their way were quite severe. And um, there was even a time where they boycotted the 1966 World Cup because um, the qualification situation was so complex that it wouldn't have been actually, they would have ended up playing so many, any team that wanted to qualify, just the one, and they still weren't even guaranteed a place. And um, they would have had to go through so many games just to get into a playoff with a team from Asia to see who would go into go to the World Cup. So the African teams kicked off and decided to, Right, we're not going to go to the World Cup, which is obviously a very, very bad look for FIFA. You know, it looks badly on them if an entire continent decides that they don't want to compete in your competition. So um, the next FIFA president, the guy, Zhao Havelanche, who was there beyond, but basically during his campaign process, he lobbied all the Africans to say, look, I'm going to give you more places. It's going to be a World Cup in Africa one day. And, you know, we're going to be more inclusive of you. And so, you know, that's a big block of votes, you know, he's just the whole of Africa, you know, there's quite a lot of countries there to vote for him. And so, yeah, he ended up uh, winning the FIFA election. And after that, teams steadily increased. You get what you got one guaranteed place in 1970 and 1974, 1978, two places, 1982, 1986, uh, 1990, then three places, then five. And then, yeah, so yeah. And currently, yeah, it's still, the number is still at five. And um, when the World Cup expands in 2026, I believe that's going to be eight African places there which is cool because again going back to the qualification process it's better now but given the amount of countries and teams in Africa uh, the five places the qualification process is so difficult as many people would have seen for the latest World Cup where you have the strongest teams facing off in the playoffs to get there and ended up um, half of them not not getting there of course. It is unbelievable and you know right off the bat all of this And what I gathered from your book, it kind of confirmed my assumptions, which is that all of this, this difficult qualification process is rooted in 
colonialism and racism. And we're getting to this right off the bat because it is the elephant in the room. It's the Cote d'Ivoire logo in the room here where, you know, that's despite like FIFA can say like, oh, well, we allowed Egypt to come to Uruguay for the first World Cup. So Africa would have been represented. So this is bullshit. That's not the case, though, because it, that was just one nation, whereas people forget that an entire continent is not a country and it's so huge and so vast. When you were gathering your information and doing your research for this book, how infuriating was all of this? Because I, I have to assume that you had the same assumptions going into this. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, It was pretty shocking. I mean, the assumption is that the teams are not good enough so they don't qualify. But it's like, no, that there, there was roadblocks put in the way to stop these teams getting there. It's like, you know, maybe... You know, yeah, you had Egypt showing up in um, the, the the early editions of the World Cup. Um, and then it's just like, OK, maybe the other teams are not good enough, you think. But actually, th like I said, the qualification process where you make all these teams face off in various playoffs against each other and then have to face a team for only one place to face a team from another continent. And sometimes that might have even meant facing a UEFA team who are clearly they are, you know, far stronger than at that time and the development of CAF and African football. And so, yeah, it was pretty much like, right, we're going to give you this cr this crumb and make you think that you're ready to c come in, but then, you know, we're just going to take it away from you. So, yeah, and the fact that that did change over time was actually, of course, very beneficial to sort of that, the glo the global, the growing um, inclusion of the World Cup, because, yeah, it was ex almost exclusively... Uh, a pursuit of the South American and the European teams just to, you know, it may as well have just been those two, two confederations competing for this competition because yeah, African teams were an afterthought essentially. And even after a lot teams started qualifying, it did feel like almost making up the numbers until African teams did start making an impact and started to beating some of the top teams. And of course, um, 1982 is the big one when Algeria beat Germany and, um, it was found, it was such a big deal for African football at that time to see a team from the continent beat a, a, a recognized team, a, two, a former winner, two-time winner of the tournament at that stage. And um, the aftermath of that just highlighted exactly how hard it was for African teams over the course of the many, many years prior, because there was that situation, the uh, this the disgrace of Gijon, as we know, um, when... Austria and Germany colluded to basically play out a result that meant that Algeria couldn't qualify, which sort of highlights, okay, we're letting you in, but we don't want to let you in too far kind of thing. And it is, like you say, the frustrations of the prejudice, the colonialism, racism that has been before and thought that had been overcome was still an issue even then as recently as 1982. Which is, it's infuriating, but it's also not shocking given the world and FIFA's track record here. But when you you mentioned something quite early on where you said like you know they were even playing uefa teams that were stronger but those uefa teams also were stronger financially as well and that's the other thing too like money does play a factor to some degree in development and in you know obviously equipment and gear like none of that stuff is cheap lodging you know so it's 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 already as if like the african nations are playing three nil down going into a match 
and then having to basically they have to recreate what Liverpool did against AC Milan in the <laughs> Istanbul 2004 Champions yeah. League final. So it's like every time. And you're right. Now we're getting to a place where, oh, they can play. They are good enough. And look at Ghana, Uruguay, that famous match, obviously the Suarez handball and in, in uh, what was it 2014, I believe. Um, so it's they're getting better and the teams and obviously there are so many great players but you're the title of your book what does that signify no longer naive was there a naivety that hmm this this could be a thing or we're just gonna again as you said the crumbs from the table here yeah I mean the naivety comes from it's it's multifaceted it's just the idea that um first of all on the pitch there was this um idea that you know it's the, like you say the racist stereotypes that you know these guys don't know how to play football these guys are playing barefooted and they don't really know the rules and that sort of thing and so obviously that sort of crystallized in the um Zaire 1974 match against Brazil where they've um shown up and the guy um Ilunga Mwepo Ilunga he right charges out of the the wall for the free kick and kicks the ball up the pitch and one of the commentators at the time uh did say oh that just shows the naivety of the Africans kind of thing and um so that is uh that sort of that there's that aspect of it first and then there's the infrastructure things um sort of finances and things like that and a bit of the naivety in um their atti- their attitudes towards um not necessarily not it's not necessarily a bad thing because you know if you get your nation to a world cup you believe that you should be compensated adequately but all that sort of infighting over money there's been a, con- a constant plague of african sides down the years um how much they deserve and how much they should be getting and that and their conflicts within the countries and their own federations their own um football associations and that and um so there's a naivety there where they're just kind of not really focusing on the task in hand and um how that has developed and how that has become better these days we we hope anyway that teams are sort of more focused on the football rather than the other distractions and um yeah again just things like uh the street wiseness of the other teams again this is going back to stuff on the pitch but also um the overarching stuff uh like how referees uh the referees attitudes to games how they how they approach matches how the opposition are going to behave you know whether you know you're going to get players diving and things like that against you and you're not ready for it you're like you're flying into tackles and all that sort of thing so but as over time like these African teams have become so much more savvy on the pitch as well where they are competing level toe-to-toe with the European teams who would have in the past, look down their noses at African football teams as being, quote unquote, naive. So, yeah. Yeah. You, you open the book in such a fascinating way because you're discussing a country that is no longer here, which is Zaire, which I found super interesting. But what made you do that as the opening story to highlight instead of, say, as we discussed earlier, Egypt, who were the first African nation to be invited to the first World Cup, take place in Uruguay in 1930. They declined their invitation because of travel and logistics. Mm. But Zaire becomes the focal point for chapter one. Why was that? Again, it's uh, going back to the just the idea of the naivety and that how that perception, even though, yeah, like you say that, you know, there was a knowledge of African football prior to that, but that perception that Zaire, who were at the time the best team in Africa, like by some way, yeah. um, would show up at a World Cup. And 
you know what, for want of a better word, they embarrassed themselves. Like, throughout the tournament, just, you know, they got beat, a record scoreline against Yugoslavia. There was, again, the infighting over money. And then there was that moment against Brazil. But, of course, if you read the book, you realise that there are so many overarching factors that are influencing them and causing them to not focus on what their task in hand on the football pitch. And then, so it was... Uh, so, yeah, I thought that was a great point to start on because it because it was the moment that sort of emphasized, like just highlighted every stereotype, every negative stereotype about African football was just that moment when he charges out for the free kick and the sort of like the confusion there. And the fact it was against Brazil as well, which is like, okay, this is like the heights of football. This is like the pinnacle of football, the world champions at the time against, you know, this team that what the hell are they doing there kind of thing. So I thought that was a great point to just sort of kick it off. And then, of course, go back and talk about the history and what got what what led us to that point, and then what happened since then, and why things have changed so much for the better. Basically, Zaire represented uh, was a microcosm to everything prior to Roger Miller. I feel prior to nineteen ninety, obviously the Algerian eighty two was a huge moment, super huge, but. Roger Miller doing the dance and scoring goals at his age at the in Italy in 1990 kind of announced was like the declaration of like, nope, we're not just Cameroon is here. But if you think we're good, there's a whole ton of countries that are just as good, if not better. We're going to wave the flag now. Zaire represents that microcosm to me pre Roger Miller. Did you get that as well? That, hey, you know, because once... Cameroon announces themselves in 1990. As you said earlier, things begin to change a little bit. And for the better, it's still infuriatingly difficult, <laughs> but it still gets to be, we see more representation of African nations in the Cups. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think um, the, to draw the sort of parallel, the Zaire and Cameroon is uh, is great, actually, because it does um, highlight, because, you know, like we've discussed there's discrimination and prejudice and racism there, but then there's even different levels of that because the teams that were almost not even, I wouldn't even go so far to say respected because we all saw what happened with Algeria, but sort of more acknowledged were the sub-Sahara, the, sorry, the sub teams from the Sahara, the Maghreb. Obviously you had uh, Algeria done well, Tunisia played in the World Cup, uh, Morocco playing and uh, Egypt, obviously. Um, Egypt, Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, they're the, sort of like the big, um, yeah, the big four from there. And those are the teams that are, everyone would have seen before the World Cups and sort of assumed that, yes, these are the teams. But then you had Zaire, who were like obviously sub-Saharan. And it's like, okay, this is like deepest, darkest, literally deepest, darkest Africa. And then you have Cameroon, who were just like the, the next team from sort of like this sub-Saharan team to qualify and make an impact. And so it's like, oh, cool. It's like, it's not just the North Africans that can do it, but like these black guys from like West Africa and South and further, further South of the continent can actually come here and, you know, show us, what, show us something basically. So, yeah. Hmm. One of my favorite points in the book also was when you talked about your family trip to Nigeria and seeing and watching football there and seeing what the impact it had there. What, cause you were younger at that point, like what oh, yeah, impact, <laughs> Yeah, so you were a child. So, like, what what was it like going there for the first time? And then what was it like seeing what that sport meant around that country? 
it's it's so strange. I mean, so I touch on it in a book. Um, um, I don't I don't go into so much detail about it because it's more because this is obviously more of a World Cup, like you know, senior World Cup. But, but yeah, it's just the idea that I got there. I was um, I just I do remember this. So as a child, I went. I was watching Manchester United v Arsenal in the Community Shield. It was called the Charity Shield, and um, we had to leave for the airport about half time of this game, and. It was just pre-internet, pre-24-hour news and everything. So I didn't find out the result of that game till we landed in Lagos and then went to my dad's the compound that he had there. And we, like two days later, I just happened to chance hear it on the radio. And they're saying that, oh, Manchester United reacting to their win over Arsenal the other day. And I was like, oh, so, you know, I've left my house in London when, while watching this game and I'm finding out like 48 hours later. But, um, but then, yeah, but they... Because there wasn't no the, the Premier League wasn't global back as global back then, so you couldn't just access it that easily. And I said, of course, no internet and things like that. Um, but at the time, there was the Under Seventeens World Cup going on in Japan, and um, so Nigeria were, had a team out there, and Ghana had a team out there, and they were both they're basically the best two teams there. Basically, yeah. And so the, people were following this tournament. And it was kind of like, oh, and obviously because of the time difference as well, it was like, okay, so, you know, we were getting up at seven in the morning and watching like on these small 14 inch TVs would barely get any reception. There's like one in like three houses or whatever. And it's completely black and white and people are gathering around watching it to see what's going on. So then that, that's the thing you kind of see. Yeah, that's how much football is, does have an impact there because, you know, they knew that there was a Nigerian team playing in this youth tournament around the, on the other side of the world and people were caring about it. People wanted to watch it. People wanted to see it. So I do remember like, you know, waking up and watching these games and seeing these these young Nigerian players doing well. And they went, they went on to win the tournament, which is absolutely insane. Like, you know, I mean, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't prompt any street parades or anything like that, but it was one of those things that was acknowledged that this, there's a good young Nigerian team out there of football that people care about basically. So it wasn't, yeah. It was, it, yeah, it was, it was quite an experience, a very, very interesting experience. That, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, that's beautiful, you know, and now, and I don't know if it's because of marketing or maybe because of just how things work now. I don't know, but you highlighted a very important thing that has brought attention to Nigerian football these days, which is fashion, <laughs> yeah. which I, I never really would have thought about. Because it's just now, you know, everyone's got like all the major companies have got a template. But Nigeria in the last five or six years have stood out. The Super Eagles look beautiful. They look like clothes that you want to wear. In fact, I own a pair of track pants. They are currently in the wash <laughs> now. But um, but it's that's so does that do little things like that help to show and put that and put not just Nigeria, but other African nations on the stage to say, hey, look, you know Brazil is the canary yellow. You know Italy is the royal blue. England is white and red. This is us. We are super colorful, and you, you're going to want these. And it kind of is a bizarre advertisement. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a, it's a, it's an interesting one. It depends if you. You could look at it two ways. You can look at it as sort of like Nike just commodifying and like <laughs> appropriating this right. like this culture to try to sell it and make as much money for them as possible, which we know is what they're doing. But ultimately, it is still it is still something that is a kind of respectful thing that you know it's like so you know 
like I say, being young and like, obviously I went to Nigeria and I see people in their traditional clothes all there all the time. You come to England, maybe if there's like a wedding, you'll see people wearing like traditional Nigerian outfits or it's kind of one of those things, you know, you when you come from sort of like an immigrant background, you're kind of concerned about what people think right. about your family, like your, your culture and traditions. So, you know, as a kid, I wouldn't wear like the traditional African patterns to school or anything like that, or just hanging around or anything like that, you know, like I say, to weddings, special occasions, family occasions. Um, but yeah, so this is why it's so strange now growing up and seeing like these patterns, which, you know, were almost exclusively for that culture now being spread around the world. And like you get everyone from like, you know, just everyone just wanting this pattern and thing and you it's sort of like an, an eye-opening thing for me it's kind of like oh wow this it is cool like people do like these patterns you know I, what was I worried about as a kid about being like you know it's kind of like you don't it, I think shame is the wrong word but when you're a kid you do sort of like I say you're worried about what people think about your culture when it's compared to the culture that you're living in so yeah it's um yeah it is it is very cool to see that you know just everyone just rushing and adopt and loving this patterns and you know and like I say there is a respect about it as well it isn't people aren't like you know mocking it or anything like that uh, it is a like yeah this is this is cool and everyone likes it so yeah for sure I, I fully understand the childhood shame I mean having a name Salvatore Bono and you know being the <laughs> kid with the smelly lunches uh yeah, now it's exactly like, oh. exactly that yeah mm. yeah mm. it's uh yeah. I, I get it I get it you know <laughs> one of my favorite stories in the book also was the people's team created in Algeria to combat the colonizers team, which is just, if I, I, I don't want to put Africa as a monolith because it's not because every country is so unique, but if the African spirit was in one story, it is that one. Can you explain that to the audience? Well, it was mad because I remember, because I told I've had a vague I vaguely heard about it before I did doing the research for the book but when I was reading up on it I was just like this deserves a book of its own almost yes, you know yes, this yes. deserves a film this is just it's yes. absolutely fascinating so yeah so the background is that obviously Algeria had been colonized by the French and um a lot of a lot of people living in France were of Algerian heritage, not least people who were playing for the football teams, not least professional footballers who were playing for some of the better teams in France at the time. And um, obviously the, um, the National Liberation Front, FLN, uh, from um, Algeria, were trying to rise up against the colonisation of their country and the best way that one of the best ways they thought of doing it was uh through sport so you know there was i mean that's not not to undermine the fact that there was a bloody war in which many people died of course but you know but through sport as well they wanted to raise awareness of it and how they did that was they there was one guy he went to all these players of algerian origin who were playing for various french teams and said to them look how much you care about your country we care about our country cool right are you prepared to give up your career playing in France which is really probably quite lucrative for you to show how much you care about your country cool we'll do it so what do we have to do right you're going to walk out on your teams on the on a given day and then we're going to cross the border and then we're going to head back to Algeria and we're going to set up our own team and we're going to travel the world playing against other teams sounds okay a bit far-fetched is it possible yes and it happened you know 
these players, you know, can you imagine you imagine reading a team sheet and you're just like, uh, yeah, this guy's missing today because um, <laughs> we literally have no idea where he is. He was supposed to report an hour ago. Uh, we have no idea where he is. And they've obviously all met at the border. They've crossed over and then they've obviously head back down, across all the way back to, down to Algeria. And then, um, I mean, a couple of them got caught and put in jail and stuff for, you know, <laughs> on trying to do that. But um, yeah, it was it's it's fascinating and yeah it deserves its own tale i mean i i don't think i've just done it justice in that story uh i hope i've done it justice in the book but yeah that story is completely fascinating it's amazing it and yeah was... and they went around the world and they were beating so many sort of other teams as well you know and even came back to europe to face teams and beat teams and you know um yeah just to just to highlight this the, their importance of what they were fighting for um yeah i just i was blown away by that i i i I never heard of it. I, I was, mm. I love that story so much. And the way you told it was so good in the book and the way you just told it now is also very good as well. But the, cause I, I, in my head, I kept thinking, imagine if in 1998 Zidane said, yeah, no, not representing yeah. France. Leave. Cause that's <laughs> basically what it is. Exactly. Point. Yeah, totally. Totally. I mean, there, yeah, a couple of players were in the France, French national team and France, uh, the, and they would have, and so this would have been in, 1956 i think yeah and so 1958 world cup they would or maybe it was 1957 so yeah 1958 world cup they would have a couple of players would have been starters for the french team in that 1958 world cup and they weren't that they just they're just gone and france got the to the semi-finals and there's a huge what if like you know they right. had these players you know <laughs> maybe france win the world cup in 1958 you know but yeah it's a very interesting tale it's bonkers uh one of my favorite places in the world is South Africa, and you captured the rise and fall of Bafana Bafana perfectly. What do you think a country like that, which has one of the more organized leagues, one of the more financially backed leagues in the continent, can't produce a good national men's team post 2010? I mean, yes, you as you highlight in the book, 2010, they get in not on merit, but because they're the host, which is fine. They, we have a very, very exciting opening match against Mexico, which you run down minute to minute, which I love reliving <laughs> that. But after the fact, we've seen Bafana Bafana struggle. And it, and I, I was so excited because I thought maybe maybe Qatar will be the World Cup for them. And it's not. Mm. They just, mm. they, as, as you said, all those obstacles, they, you know, they fail. But what is it about? At the, in South Africa, that they can't produce a men's team to replicate what happened during the Mandela magic years of the late 90s. I mean, I you've got me stumped here because I generally can't explain it with South Africa. Many other African teams, I could say that, oh, there's probably right. infrastructure problems. There's a bit of corruption at like the top end of sort of sporting um, organizations. But I really can't explain it with South Africa. It's really bizarre because they still have thriving rugby team. They have a thriving cricket team. So sport is not something that should be ignored or is ignored there. It is something that is, they care about passionately. And you think with football, the, the sport that is you know, global and the sport they've held the World Cup and everything that has come before and after that, Africa, Africa, AFCON winners, you know, were their first proper entry, really. And I'm really, I, I'm, I'm stumped. I'm completely stumped as to how. I they was hoping you'd be able to give me some light. I know. I, know. I, wish I, could. Like, I don't get I it. Wish I, I don't could. get it. It's fascinating. I don't know. Maybe I don't because they have the, the, like I say, even the infrastructure is now there. They got stadiums yeah. because of the World Cup. 
even if they had to like downscale some of them it's just it's utterly bizarre and i i don't know if it's like a development issue it surely can't be because they would surely be able to put enough money into creating a decent team like you said they've got a really organized league their the club sides are some of the biggest and i'd say yeah some of the clubs i mean they may not be known as in for being good but everyone knows who the kaiser chiefs are right. they, you know yeah <laughs> everyone knows about these teams and so it is it is truly baffling and i really hope they get it together because you'd think that they could be a team that could make a huge impact if they can get it together. like i say they've done it on the cricket they've done it in cricket and they've done it on the rugby pitch so come on <laughs> yeah i'm with yeah. you i've had a number of south african uh south african nationals on this pod to mm. discuss the same thing i was hoping that maybe you know you could see something <laughs> I that we, an yeah, we i wish we, i had an answer and they they same thing and they've given the same answers i will say this though Bayana Bayana, you know the women's side yes, at least true. doing the represent yeah. you know representing yeah. as winners which you see, that's odd. it again. That's another. That's another way why it's so perplexing, you know, because they clearly know how to do it. You know, if the women yeah. are getting it right, you know, where's the rest of it? Why isn't the why? Why can't the men's or you two or anything like that just succeed in the same way, or not even in the same way? Just you know, qualify for a couple of World Cups. That's, <laughs> just, you know, at the basic level, just qualify. The qualify. That's yeah. that's I think the thing that's like I for me baffling. I mm. I can't figure it out, and and because football is so. Imp- we saw what the rugby world cup did for unification. We mm-hmm. saw now cricket also for unification football, of course, has done unifying, but the fact that you're having, as you put in the book for many years, when we talked about, when we're talking about South Africa now as a beautiful mixed rainbow nation, the Mandela mm-hmm. dream realized, right. But prior to apartheid ending, it was a whites only team. They tried mm, yeah. doing a, a, a blacks only team blacks that only team. obviously was, and yeah. that did not obviously get recognized at all. FIFA, of course, mm. like had every excuse in the book on that, but you have now a team of people who are descendants of people that have lived through these hard, difficult times that have grown up with these stories, what they fought for. I don't know. Like I, Maybe we need to write motivational speeches for them, and like that—that's what they. What's, what's more motivating than listening to Nelson Mandela? For goodness that's sake, it. You know? like, I, I don't. Like, I'm because I, I still can't wrap my head around it. I know you don't have an answer, and I'm still just yeah. like shit. Like I, because it yeah, just—I so. I don't get it. I, I'm not even mm. trying to make a point here. I just—I just like I'm just verbal diarrhea, but I, like, I don't get it. Totally agree. Totally agree. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know. For their sakes, hopefully they, in the next couple of years, they can get something together and, uh, you know, perform in maybe the AFCON a couple of times. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, then qualification for the next one. Like I said, there's more teams there. So, you know, by right, maybe they should be able to squeeze one of those places at least. So, yeah. For sure. Hmm. We are, now we've seen Africa host the World Cup. And as you posted in your book, all the and I hate to use the term Western fears, but all those Western fears, for lack of a better term, were null and void. It went off without a hitch. So you had some Vuvuzelas, you know, uh, in your (laughs) ear. That was really about it. For all the fears that people had of South Africa hosting the World Cup and seeing the success that it was, do you think we will see Africa host a World Cup again? 
as you try as you put in the book morocco has bid unsuccessfully almost six <laughs> cups in a row yeah. yeah what do you in your expert opinion what do you think here um i do believe it'll happen but i do think it'll be just because of now because they're growing the world cup so much and more teams are being included it will have to be a multi-country thing which i think provides perhaps more complications there i think if it's it might be maybe like you go back to just maybe like a north africa thing like if morocco egypt algeria or something like that but then you've got the issues of travel between those countries which i'm sure you know fifa will pay the right kind of people to make sure that's not too much of an issue of course but um yeah i i do i do think it will happen and i do think it'll probably initially possibly be like a a North Africa thing at first, mm-hmm. and then we'll see after that. Yeah, cool. Because yeah, like 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 we say, South Africa has hosted rugby World Cup, football World Cup, various sporting events. Um, we've had um, Nigeria has hosted a couple of youth tournaments as well. Yeah. I believe Ghana have as well. So yeah, it's um, it, it's possible. They just you know they can get the infrastructure right and the setup and the willingness as well on the part of the other footballing federations to get behind such a thing it's like because that's the thing about obviously 2010 as much as people like and rightfully criticize someone like Sepp Blatter for all his various things he's done since um since taking charge of FIFA he was insistent that he wanted Mm -hmm. a world cup in Africa I mean again we may question his motives (laughs) but ultimately he was prepared to do that and throw his weight behind it and make sure made sure it happened because he wanted to say yes the world cup has been to africa not just the plaything of europe and south america and you know pretty well obviously he was he was big on it going to asia as well so mm-hmm. yeah it was um yeah so you know he had he had he has his faults but i think to have someone that was prepared to push for that was a good thing and i think that's probably what they need they need someone in a position of power to be able to back the idea of a of another African World Cup, and I think get that momentum behind that. I think, hundred percent, hundred percent. I mean, look. Also, as you said, Sepp Blatter for all his faults, but a broken clock is right twice a day. So <laughs> there you go. You know, yeah. I'll, I'll I'll give him that, and that's about it. Um, the you you also famously quote Pele's famous quote of before the millennium, a a African nation will win a World Cup or something like that. Yeah. Do you do you think we in our lifetime, I'm pushing 40, uh, <laughs> we'll see an African nation win a World Cup. I hope so. I think is what I'm going to yeah. say about that. I hope so. Yeah. I think nowadays things are more open. I think the the gaps between, like, like we say, African teams and European teams aren't as wide as they may have been in the past. And there's a big thing now about how some of the best players in the world are now playing for African teams. Like you say, Salamane, people like that. They play, then if that can continue, um, we just hope that it just, oh. again, what has undermined African teams in perhaps sort of mid 90s to maybe early to 20, up until 2014, I would say, has been sort of like the infighting. And you'll have like big stars in the team who will perhaps throw their weight around and perhaps not get, have so much not get on with their managers so much because they're used to doing things very differently in Europe playing for the top sides. And it just needs that bit of harmony. I think a team just needs some harmony rather than, well, talent will obviously obviously helps as well. But I think just the idea of getting everyone getting, 
pull, pulling together and being on the same page. And, you know, I think an African team will potentially go far at some point in the next, well, hopefully the next two or three World Cups will see a team pushing quarters, semis, maybe even better. So I think it's possible. And uh, I'm very, I'm very, I'm more hopeful than I am expecting it at the moment. So. Same, same. Uh, I think everyone needs to take a lesson out of Drogba's book because if a ceasefire and a civil war could happen, then there's the leadership there. Like, <laughs> there hey, look, go, yeah. we can put the guns down, we can put the egos mm. down, and yeah. let's let's march on. Uh, we're going to switch gears now. Let's talk Arsenal, who are having a stellar season as we speak. This episode is being recorded right before the World Cup break. So by the time this episode airs, the Gunners may have shot themselves in the foot or shot going forward still. So how do you feel so far about how the Gunners have started off this season? Well, I yeah, exactly. It's exactly that. Because yeah, by the time people hear this, it could be very, very, very different. The Premier League table could look very different. Um, I'm very happy with the way things are going at Arsenal, obviously. I am very concerned that the squad currently isn't quite as strong and or deep as um, would like it to be. I think, what is it now? We've played 12, 13 games at this point and looking absolutely fantastic. But if you've noticed the last few weeks, it's the same same starting 11s mostly, the odd change here. And you're kind of like, hmm. What, what what's going on below that surface you know is there anyone that's not quite is there anyone ready to come in and fill in gaps here and I think you know a couple of games recently um there's been a tend to, tendency to drop off in the sec- second half I think there's a bit of fatigue kicking in I think the World Cup break is well like I say people will know when they listen to this. I think the World Cup break is very welcome as it's coming up um just to just get people a bit refreshed I don't think we're going to have too many players going to the World Cup and going far in the World Cup. So it might be, you know, a little bit of a, a blessing to get some players home early and ready ready to go for the second half of the season, which is going to be huge. There's, there's going to be so many games to be packed in there, yeah. um, plus Europa League, plus um, FA Cup and everything. Is, so there's going to be have to be a bit of a um, prioritising from um, Mikel Arteta to see where um, what, what what is best for Arsenal this season. I think going all out to try and win the title I think would be fantastic but I don't just don't think they've got the energy and the legs to push it all the way to the season I think everyone is they're all doing fantastically well right now but you know it's a long old season and <laughs> um you know and you've got you got to hope that hoping for players to maintain their form like someone like Gabriel Martelloni has been absolutely fantastic this first half of the season how, how has he got it in him to push on for the whole season doing that? Bukayo Saka, in the most recent game, as we say this, he went off with an injury, but he's so he's supposedly all right, but he will be playing for England at the World Cup. You know, how far do England get at the World Cup remains to be seen. Um, he is one that probably needs to rest. He's he's so young, he's played so much football mm-hmm. at this stage of his career. He does need a bit of a break sometime. But unfortunately, we are going to keep. Well, fortunately, we're going to keep. Pu- we're going to keep pushing him uh, to just because he's so good. You know, he's, right. he has to play. You know, so he's uh, such a key player. Um, but I do. But yeah, I do worry about his ankles, knees, hamstrings, everything. You know, yeah, you don't want to, you don't want burnout by before he hits like twenty five or anything like that. So that's. Yeah. I feel like we're on a collision course with that, with the amount that UEFA want to pack in, that FIFA want to pack in, that, you know, for all the things that people want to say about Jurgen Klopp, one thing that he has criticized is how ridiculous these schedules are and a lot of managers Mm -hmm. have. 
And I think it's for that reason, you know, obviously it's for that reason. And you have a young player, as you said, that could burn out by the time he's 25. And we, how many mm. times have we seen this story before these schedules got so insane? Yeah. I mean, even just on an Arsenal perspective, we had it with Jack Wilshere, who was right. um, threw him in as a kid. And he was so good because, you know, he pushed himself so much. And then, you know, he got one big injury. And then after that, it was not, he wasn't rushed back after that. Admittedly, he had, he took time to come back from that injury, but then he was back. But then there was a knock-on effect, you know, more little niggles that were coming on, like, you know, these tiny knocks in, and, and then all of a sudden he was, you know, done. <laughs> yeah. and that was it. He was just done. And it was just like, this is so sad because you had a, the potential for such a fantastic player here, but you know, it, there's the burner. I mean, that, and he's the cautionary tale for, right. you know, all these young players that are coming through now. So, For sure. How did your fandom of Arsenal come about? Um, it was, um, it's a local thing. So I'm born in Camden, North London. I'm not sure how many of your listeners will be aware of that. That's the closest teams to us, obviously Tottenham and Arsenal, um, North London. So, but Arsenal were geographically closer. So I knew a lot of, Arsenal fans growing up so like most of my friends were Arsenal fans and it's just kind of like you know that kind of Chris that kind of comes from that as well but there's also a kind of like a, a little community a community aspect as well because um there's like Arsenal tended to always sign like oh just you know at that point they were the team that seemed to have the most black players in their team basically mm-hmm. so they were recognizable they're players that sort of like you know they look like you so you're like Okay, I'm more familiar with these kind of players. And it was at a period as well in English football where um, there was a lot of sort of hooliganism, terrorist racism and things like that. And so you wanted to sort of, you would have gravitated towards what felt safe. And Arsenal kind of felt safe, like, you know, because of that, that, like, you know, they made heroes out of players like Ian Wright and Kevin Campbell, you know, and um, David, um, David Rowcastle. You know, these guys were like, he, like lauded. And it's kind of, it was really strange to see in, um, in English football at the time, because there were, you know, Man United had players like Paul Ince and uh, Andy Coles at Newcastle, players like that, Les Ferdinand at QPR. So there were, you know, there were recognisable black players who were being, like, you know, held up here. But Arsenal seemed to be the place where it, that felt more comfortable. And even, like, you'd see faces in the stands. You'd be like, okay, this is a multicultural supporter base, you know? Yeah. you the shirt, the shirt you'd see people walking down the street with, it's like, yeah, like, you know, mostly Arsenal shirts, obviously where I was living. And um, so, yeah, it just felt that's where it grew from. It's kind of like a, a, a safe haven for, you know, like young black kids, basically. You know, you know? So, um, yeah, I mean, that's part of it. But obviously they were winning stuff as well. So that helps, you know. <laughs> 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 I, what was it like growing up in that area? Because that area... Camden is like one of the coolest places I've ever been to. It is, it's British punk. It's where Amy Winehouse is from, but it's also, mm-hmm. and it's documented so beautifully in that very, uh, very impactful Steve McQueen uh, series, Small Axe with yeah. Caribbean culture, uh, West African mm-hmm. culture, the, the food, the music, like you can just taste everything as you're watching it. And I, 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 whenever I go to London, it's one of my favorite neighborhoods to visit because it's just, it's, it's the most New York neighborhood for mm. me, you know, being from yeah. New York, it's the most New York neighborhood. Mm. So what was that like growing up there and just seeing a place that is not like anywhere else on the planet, or if it is anywhere else like on the planet, it's like New York city where 
<laughs> that that's a counterculture haven, but it's also a beautiful immigrant haven yeah. as well. Yeah. I mean, that's what it felt like in Camden. It was kind of like you say like it's growing up, it's like not knowing it's like anywhere else in the world. It that's it. It never felt it just felt normal to me. It's it felt normal that, you know, I'd see like a load of Asian kids or a load of like Irish kids or you know, English, they say Caribbean and West African, you know, it's just everyone was there like like my primary school was just like you see our class photo it's just like so multicultural and it's just like yeah and that just felt normal to me and it was more sort of leaving that and seeing how different other places were that sort of like really opened my eyes I was like oh so not everywhere is like this kind of thing you know yeah it's um yeah no it's great growing up there and yeah you know if I if I could afford to live there I'd move back there (laughs) (laughs) the real estate's a little different oh my goodness yeah it's um (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, hit hit peak gentrification now. It's so <laughs> expensive to live there now. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, it's but it, it is cool though that like that neighborhood still gets love and attention. I mean, not the gentrification mm. part, but I yeah, mean that's what's happening everywhere. But it's mm. it's a special place, and I'm like mm. I'm 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 kind of jealous that you got to grow up in that. You know, it's like because <laughs> yeah. it's it's like again, mm. it's it's like one of the coolest places because it's just yeah. again, aside from you, you go there and. It's it's the smells of just this amazing food and the sounds yeah. of just every type of music and everybody looks mm. fucking cool like every that's the thing <laughs> you can't like you could be a bum and still look cool camping <laughs> cool so yeah. I, yeah. I mean that's the thing you know to repay the compliment I mean the first time I went to Manhattan I was like yeah I could live here kind of <laughs> yeah, so, I, like, you know, just just everywhere I went around you know you know. If you go to, you know, obviously Brooklyn, um, yeah. you up to Harlem, you know, went down to um, even, like, you know, Little Italy, Chelsea, everywhere. It was just, it felt very Londonish. It was just yeah. like, yeah, you know, this is, you know, it felt, yeah, I could move here. I didn't, <laughs> but yeah. Come on, whatever you want. Yeah. If it's expensive in Camden, I guarantee you it's the same price here. <laughs> exactly, but, yeah. But uh, I always equated London as New York's wiser, older brother. So just thanks mm. for, uh, you know, giving, giving us the uh, inspiration. <laughs> You know, we're going to go back to Arsenal for a minute. You know, what our Teta has done has been on display this from last season in the Amazon series. Mm. What do you think? What do you think is happening at Arsenal now? Do you feel like there's a culture shift and a paradigm shift and can it sustain itself? I mean, because I look at it as a neutral watching the mm. series going. It's almost a parody that he's with the drawing board. Yeah, and like, yeah, look, yeah. He's mm. not the most motivational speech. He's yeah. the opposite <laughs> of Mandela. But yeah, exactly. it's whatever it is, it seems to be working. Can it mm. sustain itself, or is it just luck, or is it a charade? Like, what? How do you feel? How do you make of it? Um, I think, in terms of whether it can be sustained, I think what he's done is because he's now sort of because a lot of the players he's buying are sort of like that twenty-three round. 24 and under basically and he's obviously still quite young so if he's thinking about a 10-year plan there he's going to have his generals who will be there for some time you'd imagine and um yeah and if they all grow together then yeah it could potentially go on to be something that does endure for a longer time and if he does and if he tries to repeat it you know because that's what you know the sort of the greats like Arsene Wenger and Alex Ferguson before him. Not so. I'm not comparing him to those before course, anyone starts getting angry. I'm just saying, <laughs> but that is the template for what if you're going to be a long a, a manager with a you know a legacy. You know, you try and do that. You rebuild your teams, and I think you know he's building a team now, which he hopefully will go on to be successful in the next two or three years. Like you know, majorly successful, and then 
be able to sort of recycle that and just keep bringing in. And I think because he, like you say, the, the the Amazon documentary doesn't always paint him in the most uh, <laughs> engaging um, or the most. It makes, it makes him look entertaining, but it doesn't make him look like the most uh, sophisticated or savvy. But I imagine they've cut out all the 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 boring minutiae of tactical planning and things like that, and just kept the the headline stuff in there. But um, yeah, he's but he's clearly a smart man, and this is the thing: he's clearly he he's he has an intelligence, a footballing intelligence that it it's taken time to grow at Arsenal. And the fact is, he's been given the opportunity to fail, quote unquote, right, in the last right. couple of years. And um, it's one thing that he would not the the, the patience he would not have got at any other club. And I think he'll be grateful to Arsenal for giving him this opportunity. So I think if, you know, he does become like a, a superstar manager in the next couple of years, he will hopefully repay that faith to Arsenal and stick around rather than jumping ship for, you know, like a Barcelona or a Real Madrid or even a PSG or someone like that. Right. Um, yeah, you'd, you'd hope that because Arsenal have stuck with him through some bad times, he will repay that favour. Um, but yeah, I think he can sustain it. Um, but again, it's that issue of um, having the players as well. No, I was talking about him probably having his head turned. Maybe the players might as well, you know? Like, I, I mean, I can talk about Gabriel Martinelli forever, but, you know, if <laughs> some of the top clubs come in for him in a year's time, then, you know, who's to say he's not going to say, well, you know, I can do this. And that is the issue with young players as well. I mean, you right. hope that they grow with the managers, but, you know, when they're young and they're doing well, it's kind of like, the bright lights and they just kind of you know maybe i'll maybe i can go in somewhere else and test myself but you know you just kind of hope that they will they buy into him enough to want to stay and that the club continues to keep developing and getting better to the point where you know these players don't want to leave and even if they do the club is in a position to replace right. them almost like for like and i think arteta is savvy enough it's just about how much the club gets behind him as well because he spent a lot of money actually so for all his success he has spent a lot of money in the last couple of years and um that money won't. That money might run out at some point, uh, unless, uh, <laughs> unless, uh, unless Stan Kroenke is looking to, uh, you know, buy and sell someone else. Like, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Um, look, yeah. look, that money is what swayed Gabriel Jesus from. Because I there was there a there, was, yeah. there was a moment where yeah. I thought I'm a Milan supporter. There was a moment mm. where it looked like we were getting him, and then yeah. made that turn. And I was like, oh, come on! And why? Because yeah. the cash was good. So. Yeah, no. Yeah, Premier League cash is uh it's really strange because obviously, yeah, you would have you'd have grown up watching Syria in the late 90s where everyone was going to Syria <laughs> and now it's it's flipped and now then it was La Liga, and now it's the Premier League. And right. it's yeah, it's uh you know, I don't know where the circle will turn next, but um, you know, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. You know, despite poor seasons the last few years, the gunner faithful have stuck by this club through thick and thin, proving that they have one of the best fan bases in the world. Do you think the players and management are understanding and appreciating that even more now and are trying to repay that faith? I think so, definitely. I think, um, you know, I think, I mean, with obviously the exception of the COVID years where no one could go to right, games. I right. think, you know, the, the stadium was still, you know, mostly selling out. People were still there. You throw through thick and thin, like the, the defeats, the wins, whatever, you know. I mean, you ignore what people say on social media because obviously people are angry and people just rant and shout and everything say whatever but you know in the ground itself there has been a massive amount of support even when things have been going badly so I think that yeah I think you know as much as players and managers say yeah, they switch off from this sort of thing I'm sure they, there's there's got to be some acknowledgement that you know even earlier this season I was like when William Saliba scored an own goal against uh, Leicester 
um the fans immediately got up and was like encouraging him and it was kind of like it was a really strange thing to see in the stadium because you know people fans support their players but this was like they the, the Arsenal fans were almost louder than the cheering right. Leicester supporters because it was like yeah it's a real real getting behind the players now and I think that is very much a good thing and I think yeah the players and managers they can't ignore it if they if they <laughs> what they're seeing basically because it's been worse. I mean, you know, we go back to the end end times for Arsene Wenger, where everything right. was getting booed, basically. So this is a, a complete contrast to that. So, yeah, I think, uh, yeah. So I think it is noticeable if you are if you are if you are regular at Arsenal, you'll notice the change in atmosphere over the last like ten years, basically. Love it. We are in my favorite part of the podcast is the final part of the podcast. I want to thank you so much for coming on. Ibram, this has been so much fun, so enlightening. The book is called No Longer Naive. You should all go pick it up. You should all go read it. You should all support this man and his work because I, you will learn something and I cannot, cannot applaud you enough for all the things that you do. So thank you for not just enlightening me, but hopefully mm-hmm. enlightening the rest of this audience when they listen to it. So thank you so much for everything. And thank yeah, you hopefully. for coming on. I mean, like, obviously, um, I say it when when this goes out, I mean, obviously Senegal would have just won the world cup. So, you know, <laughs> so yeah, when Senegal just, now that you've all seen that Senegal just won the world cup, how about you read a history of African football? <laughs> now time for a coffee break. Curva Mundial is sponsored by Mod Cup Coffee in Jersey City, but you can get it anywhere in the world from modcup.com. Mod Cup, drink modern coffee. Use code MUNDIAL for 10% off your first order. We got three rapid-fire questions. These pertain to your club. Uh, Question number one. If you could bring back one retired player to your club, alive or dead, who would it be and why? To play as not not as a 50-year-old, presumably. Not as a 50-year-old. They have drunk from the fountain of youth. In fact, they are drunk from the fountain of youth. Uh, mm. intoxicated by it and can go back in time <laughs> in Marty McFly's The Time Machine and go now and play for the Gunners or for, you know. Yeah. Um, I will say Dennis Burkamp because, nice. you know, I think it, he's kind of one of those players I think would transcend all eras of football. I think he would, because, you know, some players you look in the past and you say, yeah, I'm not sure that style of play will float now in the, in the one game. Dennis Burkamp, absolutely. What he done, I mean, the title of his book, Stillness and Speed, is just, you know, that's that's what he's that's what he's got. He put him in that team now. And I think all every attacking player will just feast off of what he does and everything he brings to the table. <laughs> Dennis Bergkamp, just one of, what, one of the best players I've ever seen, basically, you know. Human machine. He's a human wrecking yeah. ball. Um, mm. Now, money is not an option. I know Arsenal's got a lot of it. <laughs> and uh we're gonna pretend they've got more of it uh <laughs> if your club could sign one active player today who would it be and why oh um i would say uh kevin de bruyne nice yeah it's similar sort of similar sort of thing to the burkamp situation because you know when i look at kevin de bruyne i just think there's no player who can do what he does there are players who can do other things, but no one does what he does with a football right now in the modern game. And I just think, you know, you have that in your team, and it's like it's like an extra, it's like an extra player sometimes. You know, he's just it's not it's not because he's bursting past people with pace. It's not because he's 
you know, particularly strong or anything like that. It's just because when he's got the football, he can do things that, you know, I mean, obviously the other players have to be good enough to anticipate as well, but, you know, it is, yeah, it's just phenomenal. So, yeah, I'd take Kevin De Bruyne if I could. Probably the greatest football IQ in the game right now from yeah. someone not named Lionel Messi. So, yeah, I, what, a, what, a, what a talent. And finally, what has been your favourite moment as a fan? Favorite moment as a fan was it was probably the first like so when Arsenal won the league in 1990. No, actually, you know what? I'm gonna go 2002 winning a league Old Trafford against Manchester United. That was the moment that was you know, that felt like a, a real passing of the torch moment. That was like, you know what, these guys have dominated for the last decade and we've come here. They can't do anything. It was a terrible game of football because they just kept kicking our players. They couldn't do it and get the ball off us. And then we scored, uh, Sylvain Wiltord late on. And that was it to confirm the Premier League title. And I think that is genuinely, I mean, I was watching it around my my, my mate's house on, on the television again. Yeah. And um, we were just going crazy in his house. Like a few of us, like five of us jumping around. And it was just like, yeah, it felt like, a real unfortunately it didn't quite come to pass unfortunately but it felt like a real right we have taken the torch from you guys it is our turn now we're going on the run for the next 10 years and being the greatest team of all time kind of thing but yeah it was that was that was fantastic yeah 2002 winning league at old trafford that's awesome that's awesome mm. ibram thank you so much for coming on thank you for everything and i let's stay in touch and come back anytime so, when you write your next book Sal, absolutely. This has been so much fun. Thank you for having me on. Follow us on Twitter at Curva Mundial Pod and subscribe to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.